Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris Deganey at Internet Radio. Today is Friday, October 6th, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Before this week, I had about maybe 60 linear feet of shelf space for my own library, and perhaps 20 or 25% of that was unused or used for junk other than books. Now this week I've added over a hundred feet to that. Another bookshelf with 24 feet of space is on order and I am running out of wall space. And it is not nearly enough to house Clifton Emmeheiser's library. That is how I spent much of my week and at least a quarter of his books are still unpacked. The people the good brethren in Ohio who helped us pack know exactly what I mean. Melissa says that our house now looks like a library. Almost. This is um special notices to all who deny two seed line part nineteen. I apologize for falling off the one Timothy train so quickly, but this week has simply been that kind of week. I just didn't have the time to do it properly, so I thought I would present this paper of Clifton's, and I pray get back to 1 Timothy chapter 5 next Friday. Yahshua Christ informed us in his gospel that he came to reveal things kept secret from the foundation of the world. He uttered those words while giving us the parable of the wheat and the tares, and informing us that the tares, which are evidently wicked people who cannot ever be reformed, were planted by the devil. Shortly after saying those things, Yahshua Christ declared that every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted shall be rooted up. Then, much later, in Revelation chapter 12, we learn from Christ that there was a rebellion against Yahweh God at some time in the past, as the description of that rebellion uses language that is explicitly in the past. So we learn that a third of the host of heaven were cast down to earth and that their place was found no more in heaven. The leader of that host was identified with labels such as the great dragon, that old serpent, the devil and Satan. Perhaps 1500 years before Yahshua Christ had revealed those things to us in both prophecy and parable, The Genesis account was recorded by Moses under the inspiration of Yahweh. We know that Genesis was written by Moses because Christ himself attributed it to Moses. That account also contains both prophecy and parable as well as historical chronicles. In Genesis, we see an entity that was already present in the Garden of Eden when Adam was first placed there. 
and which is identified as a serpent. This serpent must be that old serpent of Revelation chapter 12, as the language insists upon identifying for us a particular serpent, that old serpent, obviously referring back to Genesis chapter 3. And there is no other serpent in Scripture which may be identified in that same manner. Elsewhere in the parables of Christ, we have an entire race identified as serpents. In the words of John the Baptist, even before Christ began his ministry, we have an entire race identified as serpents. And we also have goat nations, which are distinguished from sheep nations. These terms do not describe individuals of one religion or idea or concept or another, but nations which shall ultimately be distinguished on sight. But in the descriptions in Genesis, Yahweh God created one race, the Adamic race, and the entire Adamic race is assured of preservation in Christ. As Paul of Tarsus had said, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ, referring to the race of Adam, all shall be made alive. So ostensibly, none of the race of Adam can possibly be goats or goat nations in the sense of the Matthew chapter 25 parable. Instead, the goats must be those tares of the parable of the wheat and the tares, since the tares are all going to be destroyed, and since the fate of the goat nations is the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. With this, it becomes evident that the origin of the goat nations must be the same as the origin of the tares, as Yahweh God denies them and has never taken credit for having created them. Yet they have the same fate as the devil and his angels. Since the devil and his angels cannot actually create anything, but only rebel against God by corrupting his creation, we see that before Adam was placed into the Garden of Eden, there must have been a corruption of Yahweh's creation, as there was an entire tree of the knowledge of good and evil which is present in Genesis and which is represented by the serpent. But in the end, in the revelation of Yahshua Christ, it is gone. And after all of those not written in the book of life are cast into the lake of the fire, along with the devil, only the tree of life remains. There is no more tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Ostensibly, since only whites can be historically traced in their current state to the race of Adam through Noah, 
and non-whites have resulted in corruptions of the Adamic race wherever they have mingled the non-whites must be accounted as being derived from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil as they are the flood from the mouth of the serpent and they are the goat nations currently being gathered by Satan to besiege the camp of the saints as Polytarsus had indicated if you are not a son then you must be a bastard and there is no third possibility if you are not a sheep then you are a goat and if you are not of the wheat then you must be a tare. The modern Jews, descended from the Edomites of the Old Testament, represent Satan in the world today, as the Gospel identifies them as an entire race of serpents. Just as Herod the Great was an Edomite Jew, and he was also depicted as a great red dragon in Revelation chapter 12. So those of us who understand two seed line also understand that the origin of the Jews and others of like race is with the devil as the scriptures inform us in so many places and we can trace the genealogy of the Edomite Jews back through scripture to Cain and ultimately to that old serpent who was his father. Our two-seed line interpretation of Scripture is consistent with every parable, with every prophecy, and with every word of Yahweh our God. Only one verse in our modern Bibles stands in the way of this interpretation, which perfectly fits all the rest of Scripture as well as everything we see in history and everything we see going on us going on in the world today around us that verse is Genesis 4.1 throw out Genesis 4.1 and every other verse falls into place like a beautiful self-assembling jigsaw puzzle but we have fully demonstrated here in the series and elsewhere elsewhere in our writings that Genesis 4.1 is a corrupted passage it's a gloss and that having no second witness the way it reads today cannot stand as a valid testimony but because of Genesis 4.1 a host of men have sought to spiritualize good and evil and seek to turn the origin of wickedness and the concept of evil into mere thoughts and words. However, the scripture does not accept those concepts. Throughout the New Testament, wicked men are consistently and exclusively identified as a race or as seed or as plants, or as nations, or as certain types of beasts, or as fathers, or as sons. All of these things which are strictly biological distinctions never 
are groups of wicked people characterized exclusively as a religion or a school or a sect or a cult which were the terms that would have been appropriate to describe students or adherents to a set of concepts or ideas. One verse is the primary cause of that confusion and if you are hung up with that one verse you are wanting for a world of understanding. That verse is not a reliable witness but evidently it is the prick in your eye promise to blind us with the position of scribe in ancient times was ceded to the enemies of our God. They remain our principal scribes to this very day. Yahweh has promised that ultimately to him every knee shall bow, every Adamic knee that is. He destroys sinners, but it is not his objective to destroy sin. Nowhere is it promised that there will be an end to bad ideas, thoughts, or conceptions. Doctrines do not get cast into the lake of fire, but people certainly do receive that fate. Christians are encouraged to conform their minds to Christ. But ideas or thoughts themselves can never really be destroyed. For that reason, Yahweh destroyed the Sodomites and he outlawed sodomy. Men can cease to engage in it, but sodomy as an idea can never really be destroyed so long as there are men. Bad ideas certainly cannot be destroyed, but the devil, his angels, and the goat nations certainly will be destroyed. Only our two-seed line interpretation of Scripture helps us to identify both who they are and where they are going. With this, we shall begin our presentation of Clifton Emmerheiser's special notice to all who deny two-seed line number 19 and Clifton begins by saying with this special notice we again focus on the world's greatest problem which has now been with us for over 7,000 years we are confronted with this great issue every day of our lives and we face it in every direction we turn. Try as we may, it cannot be avoided. And while we attempt to deal with this subject in a rational manner, there are hecklers on the sidelines ridiculing our efforts. They use every opportunity to belittle and mock the endeavors of those who expose the nature of our enemy. Top among these at the present time is Ted Wyland. Up until Wyland, Stephen Jones held the first place. You may think it is not nice to point fingers and name names, but Ted Wyland, in his book, Eve, Did She or Didn't She, 
instructed me, instructed Clifton, to point fingers. And certainly they must be pointed. These men are posers, posing as identity Christians, identifying only half of the ancient parties of scripture, or actually, according to the latest census figures, perhaps only 6%, and missing all the rest, misidentifying all the rest. Clifton says, let's see what he said on page 1 of his book, and quoting Ted Wyland, if the Seedliner's assessment of the events in the Garden of Eden can be proven scripturally correct, then no matter how unorthodox or unpopular this doctrine may be, at least with Jews and niggers, we are duty-bound as adherents of the Word of God to accept and teach it. Spiritual leaders are admonished by the Scriptures to address false doctrine, especially doctrine injurious to the gospel of Yahshua Christ. And he cites Titus chapter 1 verses 7 through 14. And I'm sorry I couldn't avoid the interpolation regarding Jews and their kindred. Clifton says what Wyland had in mind with this passage was to use it to justify his own personally contrived point of view. This passage, referring to Titus chapter 1, this passage says in part, Wherefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. And Clifton responds and he says, That is exactly what I have been doing in this special notice series. The anti-seedliner's position is totally irresponsible. And before we are finished, we will see how spurious their claim is. I must say that, as we have seen in previous presentations in this series, where Ted Wyland sees the word father in the Bible, it doesn't mean father. Where he sees the word seed, it does not mean offspring. Where he sees son, it means to refer to something other than a child or a descendant. In Ted Wyland's Bible, nothing means what it says, so that he can imagine what it says for himself. That is a world of lies and deception. And it allows Ted to justify himself, along with the Negro savages that he shares his Bibles with. Here Clifton continues, and he makes an example of Wyland. And he says, early in his book on page 2, Ted Wyland plays with words in an attempt to discredit the two-seed doctrine of Genesis 3.15. Of the words he toys with, quote-unquote, fact, theory, and hypothesis, he settles on the later, meaning hypothesis. In his effort to play a game with words, he forgets the most important element, that being to check his premise. It doesn't matter how many cunning words one might use. If the premise is not correct, the conclusion will be false. As we will see later, 
Wyland didn't check his premise. Not only does Ted Wyland, or maybe I should call him Wieland, I actually forget. I think it's Wyland. Not only does Ted Wyland characterize the truth of Genesis 3.15 as being a hypothesis, he also accuses the two seed liners on page two of his book, Eve, Did She or Didn't She? And Clifton quotes Wyland again, or maybe it's Weenie Land, who proceed to ignore clear textual intent, who disregard the principles of Hebrew and Greek idioms and the rules of consistency, and who assume a literal interpretation of clearly non-literal statements. And to that perfidy, Clifton responds and he says, If anyone is disregarding Hebrew and Greek, it's Ted Wyland. He disregarded the Greek when he scoffed at John 8.44, where our Savior said directly to the Jews, Ye are of your father the devil. The Greek for the word of in that case, meaning sons of a father, as I covered in special notice number one. And Clifton is wholly correct that the Greek preposition ek, where it is used of one person in relation to another, refers to the source or origin of that person as the offspring of the later. But the use of the genitive case alone to describe one person as being of another in the sense of being a descendant of another, is enough to establish the relationship. This was the usage in classical Greek, and it was also the usage in Scripture, such as in the genealogy of Christ, given in Luke chapter 3. Check the Greek. It's only the genitive case. The Greek from the relevant part of John 8.44, and I'm going to read a little Greek here, and it might bore you to death, or perhaps you may not understand it. I'll try my best to stress the important words. The Greek, from the relevant part of John 8.44, where the King James Version has, Ye are of your father the devil, reads like this, Humais, which means you, Humais ek tu patros, they're the important words here. Ek tu patros. Tu diabolu este. Tu diabolu este. Of the devil you are. Is what that literally means. Umais you. Ek tu patros. From of the father. The devil you are. Este. The you would be repeated in English unnecessarily if we literally translated every word. But in an English translation, we would only write it once. Now, in order to help us determine what this means, especially this phrase, ek tu patros, we will read the Greek from a similar phrase found in the Septuagint in Genesis chapter 19, Verse 36. Kahi sunlaban hai duo thugateres lot and the daughters of lot conceived. 
ectopatros, haton, from their father. So, and the daughters of Lot, their father, conceived. And Brenton's English in that passage, for those relevant words, reads... Thus were both the daughters of Lot with child by their father. The words ek tu patros. The same words we see in John 8.44 translated by the father. Of course there's a pronoun with it meaning their. So we would write it in English as by their father. The phrase ek tu patros auton is by their father. And therefore, in John 8.44, the meaning of the phrase should not be interpreted differently. Likewise, in the Greek, from a relevant part of Genesis 19.37, we read, Kahi hedekin, and they bore, He presbutera huion, and the elder, the elder of the two daughters, bore a son. Kahi ekalisin to onoma atu, and called his name Moab. And then the last phrase is the pertinent one. Legusa ek tu patros mu. Saying, it is from my father. The it is, we have to add in the English language. The word isn't repeated in Greek. In the corresponding verse in Breton's English, we read, And the elder bore a son and called his name Moab, saying, He is of my father. Breton putting the he is, where I said it is. Breton putting the he is into italics, because it doesn't exist in the Greek, but we would have to add it in English. Of my father, ek tu patros mu, mu being the, por- the pronoun my, ek tu patros mu, of my father. Once more, out of many possible examples, we may read the Greek from a relevant part of Leviticus chapter 22, verse 4, where it says, Kahi anthropos and a man, ek tu spermatos aron, from the seed of Aaron, to Hyrios, the priest, Kahianthropos, a man, and a man, I'm sorry, I'm missing the Kahi, and a man, Ectuspermatos Aron, to Hyrios, from the seed of Aaron the priest. Breton's English from the corresponding part of Leviticus chapter 22 reads, and the man of the seed of Aaron the priest. Now imagine that this man was a mere follower of Aaron the priest, as a clown like Ted Wyland would say of the Jews in John 8.44. Or reading the law, must he have been a descendant of Aaron the priest. So, ek to spermatos means that he's from the seed, from the descendants of Aaron the priest. Of course he was a descendant of Aaron the priest. And no other interpretation is possible. 
But in Ted Weiland's world, we can claim that words don't mean what they do. We can just make things up where truth is not convenient. <laughs> Returning to Clifton, who continues to write in reference to Wyland. In addition to his charge that we disregard the principles of Hebrew and Greek, which Wyland clearly disregards, Wyland accuses the two seedliners of misinterpreting literal and non-literal Hebrew and Greek idioms. Then on page 3, Wyland says, However, as Bible students already know, there are no scriptures that expressly teach any of these false conclusions. And responding to that, Clifton says, inasmuch as he demands the scriptures to teach expressly, that alone is proof positive that Wyland himself has a total disregard for Hebrew and Greek idioms concerning two seed line doctrine or any other doctrine. Again in his book, he makes the same allegation on page 7, where he says, Clifton quoting Wyland, If these statements were true, certainly God would have inspired his writers to warn his people of these dangers somewhere in the Bible. So Clifton says, Wyland evidently forgets that Matthew chapter 13, verses 34 and 35 say, all these things spoke Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spoke he not unto them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. Speaking in parables is hardly speaking expressly. This is why Ted Wyland has a total disregard for the parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew chapter 13, as he demands it to be rendered expressly. Not only did Yahshua speak in parables, but all the prophets did likewise. So if Wyland expects the scriptures to be explicit, he is under a voodoo-induced hallucination. It seems whether a scripture is literal or non-literal depends on how the all-wise Ted Wyland interprets it. Is that rebuke sharp enough? Citing Titus 1.13. It also appears, according to this book on page 1, that he is the only one authorized to give a rebuke. And here we must correct Clifton's refutation of Wyland to some degree, and assert that in his explanation of the parable of the wheat and the tares, which was only meant for his disciples and not for the multitudes, Yahshua Christ was indeed being explicit. In the parable of the wheat and the tares, we see references to a man which sowed good seed in his field. And his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. That's the parable. But in the explanation of that parable, we are informed explicitly that the good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. So if seed are not children, 
And if there are not people here on this earth from the devil, as well as the people who are here from God, then the explanation of the parable is not an explanation, and instead, it is only a second parable. However, Christ was asked by his apostles, privately, for an explanation. And he supplied an explanation to them, which Matthew recorded, and where we have no reason to believe that his explanation was not explicit. Seed, children, devil. If we try to make the explanation into a parable by denying the plain meaning of the words, then in effect, we are denying the words of Christ. There might be room for wrongful interpretation in the parable before the explanation was given, but the answer of Christ to his apostles, which explained the parable, leaves no room at all for such a mistake. None. Keep denying the scripture. Continuing with Clifton, Ted R. Wyland and all the other anti-seedliners continue to denounce and downplay the fact that nowhere in scripture is Adam recorded as the father of Cain. They neglect to observe that in Genesis 3.15, Adam is totally left out of the equation. Had Adam's name been mentioned in that verse, it would have said that the seed of Adam would bruise the head of the serpent. Therefore, the enmity was between Eve and the serpent alone. Thus, the anti-seedliners unwittingly and effectively changed the reading of Genesis 3.15 from the woman to Adam. And we will attempt to clarify Clifton's statement here. Excluding Adam from the picture of Genesis 3.15, we see the possibility that there is seed referred to in that passage which cannot be attributed to Adam. Both Cain and Abel were born of the woman, but they weren't both born to Adam. Clifton continues, They further fail to perceive that Cain's genealogy is treated separately in Genesis chapter 4, verses 17 through 24, while Adam's is recorded in chapter 5, from verse 1 through 32. And let me say that in all the rest of Scripture, no matter how wicked a son was, he was still described as having been the seed of his father. Christ said to the Edomite Jews, I know that ye are Abraham's seed, but ye seek to kill me, killing God incarnate. How could you get more wicked than that? But he still acknowledged that they were Abraham's seed, and they were. But as Paul explains in Romans chapter 9 and in Galatians chapter 3, they were the seed of Abraham through Esau and not through Jacob. The plain fact is that Cain's descendants are treated entirely separately from Adam's, and Seth was a replacement for Abel, because Cain was not Adam's son. Otherwise, Seth would have to be a replacement for the firstborn. It's the firstborn that has the birthright, not the secondborn.
What the hell? The firstborn has the birthright. If Cain was Adam's son, Seth would have to replace Cain. Clifton continues in reference to those who deny this, and he says, In order to support their hypothesis, it would be necessary to rewrite most of the Bible, or interpret much of it out of context, which is exactly what they do. There is good reason why Cain is never recorded as Adam's son. Where it says in Genesis chapter 5 verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam and does not include specifically his supposed firstborn son. It would be a total lie and our Bible would be blatantly untrustworthy. So Cain, as Clifton very adeptly points out here, is purposely excluded from falling into the category of the generations of Adam. Clifton says, you will notice that Genesis chapter 38 verses 3 through 5 truthfully and honestly mention Ur, Onan, and Shelah, the first three sons of Judah, by a Canaanite or non-Israelite woman. Not only are those three half-breed sons of Judah mentioned there, but also in Genesis chapter 38, chapter 46, Numbers chapter 26, and in 1 Chronicles chapter 2 verse 3. So even though they were bastards, they were still attributed to Judah because Judah was their father. But Cain was never attributed to Adam. In the book of the generations of Adam, Clifton says, Oh, the anti-seedliners will wrangle. Cain was unworthy to be mentioned. Question, who could be more unworthy than Ur, Onan, and Shelah? And I would say, who could be more unworthy than thousands of other Israelites who purposely killed their own brethren? Even David. Clifton says, the anti-seedliners completely overlooked the significance of Seth being a replacement for Abel not Cain, even if Cain was disqualified for the murder of Abel, which he was not for that reason, Seth would then have had to be a replacement for Cain, not Abel. Again, the anti-seedliners are ignoring the importance of the biblical law of the firstborn son. But after all, they know better than the Almighty. The Hebrew says, in place of Abel, not Cain. According to the Aramaic Targum of Jonathan, Genesis 4.1 should read something like the following. And Adam knew his wife, Eve, who was pregnant by Samael. And that clause is in italics. And she conceived and bare Cain. And he was like the heavenly beings and not like earthly beings. And that clause is in italics. And she said, I have gotten a man 
from the angel of the Lord. And I will one day investigate why those clauses are in italics, but I can't do it. I couldn't do it in preparation for tonight. I have to find Clifton's source material, which he did not provide for me here. And like I said, only perhaps three-quarters of his books are even unpacked, never mind organized. And as we have said before, so we shall say here, we do not accept the versions of Genesis 4.1 found in the Targums as being canonical. Rather, we assert that these readings represent attempts by early commentators to reconcile the demonstrably corrupt passage Genesis 4.1 to reconcile that to their proper understanding of Scripture. Again, Clifton continues, Oh, you say, every word in the Bible is God-breathed. Yes, the original was. But we don't have an original God-breathed copy today. To prove to you there are omissions in various passages... I will show you an example that was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. This information comes from the book Understanding the Dead Sea Scrolls, edited by Herschel Shanks, a Jew. Pages 160 and 161. That doesn't discredit the scrolls themselves. The scroll is designated 4Q Samuel A, meaning that it was found in K4 at Qumran. The passage is 1 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. The following in italics is the part missing in our present Bibles. Nahash, king of the children of Ammon, sorely oppressed the children of Gad. I'm sorry, I can't read it in italics, but I'll mention it when I get there. Nahash, king of the children of Ammon, sorely oppressed the children of Gad and the children of Reuben, tribes that were east of the Jordan River. And he gouged out all their right eyes and struck terror and dread in Israel. There was not left one among the children of Israel beyond the Jordan, whose right eye was not put out by Nahash, king of the children of Ammon except that 7,000 men fled from the children of Ammon and entered Jabesh-Gilead. About a month later, Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. All the men of Jabesh-Gilead said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us and we shall become your subjects. Nahash the Ammonite replied to them, On this condition I shall make a treaty with you, that all your right eyes be gouged out, so that I may bring humiliation on all Israel. The elders at Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days to send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. If no one rescues us, we shall surrender to you. And the portion of this, which I just read, that is not found, in our modern versions, not in the King James Version and not in the Septuagint, is the first couple of lines that say, Nahash, king of the children of Ammon, sorely oppressed the children of Gad and the children of Reuben. 
and he gouged out all of their right eyes and struck terror and dread in Israel. If we didn't have the Dead Sea Scrolls, we would not have that information in our Bible. There was not left one among the children of Israel beyond the Jordan whose right eye was not put out by Nahash, king of the children of Ammon, except that 7,000 men fled from the children of Ammon and entered Jabesh-Gilead. About a month later, that's the end of the section from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Then, in the King James, we could pick up the rest of the uh, the rest of the passage in one Samuel chapter eleven verse one, where it says, "Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead." All the men of Jabesh Gilead said to Nahash, "Make a treaty with us, and we shall become your subjects." Now we don't see all of these reasons why this has happened. Nahash the Ammonite replied to them, On this condition I shall make a treaty with you, that all your right eyes be gouged out, so that I may bring humiliation on all Israel. And at this point we don't understand, because of the missing section, that he had already gouged out the right eyes of most of the children of Gad and Judah. I'm sorry, Gad and Reuben. Gad and Reuben, they've already had their right eyes taken out, except for these 7,000 that fled to Jabesh-Gilead. So the, the elders at Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days to send messengers throughout the territory of Israel to the other ten tribes. If no one rescues us, we shall surrender to you. Clifton says, This chapter in this book was written and I would say perhaps translated and edited, by Frank Moorcross, a member of the staff editing the Qumran Dead Sea Scrolls manuscripts. And he explains how he thinks the omission came about. And Clifton quoting Frank Moorcross, who's a fairly notable scholar and archaeologist of the last four or five decades, maybe six, Frank Moorcross says, The missing paragraph was lost probably as a result of a scribal lapse. The scribe's eye jumped from one line break to the other, both beginning with Nahash as the subject. And let me say that this reading of the passage in the Dead Sea Scrolls is supported, at least to a great degree, by the way that the episode is related by Flavius Josephus in Book 7 of his Antiquities of the Judeans, where Cross adds the words about a month later. His authority is evidently the Septuagint, which also has those words. However, even the Septuagint is missing most of the opening lines of the account as they appear in the Dead Sea Scrolls copy of 1 Samuel. Those opening lines help to clarify the account, and evidently they went missing from copies in the earliest times, even before the Septuagint was translated. So this is what Clifton is trying to demonstrate that there are notably and demonstrably corrupt passages of Scripture from the earliest times. However, to prove his case concerning the possible corruption of verses of Scripture at an early time, all Clifton really had to do was to cite Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 8, 
which in the Septuagint says, in Breton's English, How will ye say we are wise? How will ye say? How will you say? We are wise, and the law of the Lord is with us. In vain had the scribes used a false pen. Jeremiah wrote those words sometime before 586 B.C., where we see that in his day there were already some problems with the text of the scriptures. As a digression, which is not mentioned in my notes for this program, that's part of the reason, not all of the reason, but part of the reason why I explain at Christagenia in an article titled On Biblical Exegesis that the way to understand the Old Testament is through the lens of the New Testament. Otherwise, you can't really understand all of the Old Testament because parts of it are demonstrably corrupt, like Genesis 4.1. Now, Clifton responds to Cross's explanation of the omission in 1 Samuel chapter 1. I'm sorry, chapter 11. And he says, This is very understandable, for I too have made the same kind of error when typing. For when I read back what I have quoted from some book, often I will inadvertently skip a line of text. You can be sure if it happened once, as you see here, it has occurred in other places. The Interpreter's Bible has pointed out that Genesis 4.1 in the Hebrew doesn't make any sense. When the evidence in the Aramaic Targums is considered, Genesis 4.1 makes all the sense in the world, as I have covered that in other special notices. I will not elaborate further here. And we must add that there are other texts outside of the Targums, which support our interpretation of Genesis chapter 3. I've given them in other places, and so has Clifton, so I won't elaborate on them further here. Now Clifton continues speaking of the text, which was wanting in 1 Samuel chapter 11, and he says, Since the full text has now been restored to 1 Samuel 11, the entire chapter comes to life. We now know that some 7,000 surviving Israelite warriors from Gad and Reuben, after their defeat by Nahash's forces, escaped and found shelter north of the territory of Ammon, near the Javik River, in the, in the Gileadite, and I'm going to correct that soon, in the Gileadite city of Jabesh, about a month after their escape, Nahash decided to enslave Jabesh Gilead for sheltering these runaway subjects. Thus we can see the motivation for Nahash's assailing Jabesh Gilead far north of his usual declared borders, a Gileadite city affiliated with Benjamin and Saul. And actually, Jabesh Gilead would be affiliated with a great part of the tribe of Benjamin. But it wasn't really 
at this time a Gileadite city. Not at all. After the war between the children of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin for the wickedness at Gibeah, there was only a remnant of Benjamin remaining, and they had no wives. But the men of Israel had sworn never to give their daughters to wife for the remnant of Benjaminites. Then when it was found that the people of Jabesh-Gilead, a city of the tribe of Gad, had failed to attend an assembly, all of its inhabitants were slain, except for four hundred virgins, who were then turned over to the remnant of Benjamin for wives. This is recorded in Judges chapters 19 through 21. So, ostensibly, many Benjaminites descend from one of the virgins of Jabesh-Gilead, who were of the tribe of Gad. Later, the balance of Benjaminites who survived the war, but who did not have wives from Jabesh-Gilead, as the number of virgins was not enough, received wives at Shiloh in the land of Ephraim by another manner. But from this time, Jabesh-Gilead was most likely inhabited by Benjaminites who married one of the 400 virgins. Even later, Nahash the Ammonite made war on the Benjaminites who would have been inhabiting Jabesh-Gilead, along with the 7,000 from Reuben and Gad who had fled there. Clifton continues in relation to 1 Samuel chapter 11. This newfound discovery of missing texts from the Dead Sea Scrolls explains the reason why Nahash attacked Jabesh-Gilead, and additionally why he insisted on the removal of the right eye as a condition for their surrender. It was not unusual for those who harbored enemies in those days to be punished in this manner, and I would say that the right eye had to come out, if you wanted to completely neutralize an enemy army because the shield is typically on the left arm and the sword on the right if you have no right eye you cannot fight offensively on the battlefield it would be very difficult if you change your your hands with your shield and your sword you have your sword in your weak hand and you cannot see to defend yourself with your missing right eye. So you can't really fight with one eye in the manner of ancient warfare. Clifton says, By the same token, Nahash named his own punishment. Upon receiving the news, Saul the Benjaminite, being enraged, took immediate action by rallying the western tribes, crossing the Jordan as an Israelite militia, slaughtered the Ammonites until the heat of day. That great victory on the part of the leadership of Saul brought about his kingship over the whole over the whole of Israel. Thus was sealed the Ammonites' fate. Now Clifton says 
and I hate to read this, Clifton says, There is evidence the Ammonites traveled east and mixing with others formed the Japanese of today. And here Clifton repeated one old British Israel writer or another whom I cannot agree with. If I am not mistaken, Compare also repeated these fables. There is no tangible evidence connecting the Japanese to Ammonites or to Japhethites, as British Israel writers were often wont to do. Yet even modern Baptists attempt to make such wayward identifications, insisting that all of the world's so-called people come from Adam and looking to devise ways where that might be possible or where it might be explained. See the threads who are the the Moabites and Ammonites now and where did the races come from at the Landover Baptist Church forums. They are childish. To these may be compared a paper at Christogenia titled The Race of Genesis 10. But these mainstream Baptists try to tell us that the Moabites are Chinese and the Ammonites are Japanese and whatever. This is all straight universalist Judeo-Christian bullshit. The Ammonites are not the Japanese. The Moabites and Ammonites, the greatest degree of their heritage lies in the sand niggers in Arabia and Jordan and Lebanon today. That's where they are. They never really left. They may have been marginalized for many hundreds of years, but they never really left. Clifton continues and says, the Antichrist, anti-seedliners, like Wyland and company, are so busy making pretzels of the scriptures that they don't have time to research these things. They seem more intent on rewriting the word to fit their own personally contrived, misconstrued concepts. They twist Genesis 3.15 into a pretzel to mean the spirit against the flesh. They also pretzelize Genesis 3.15. Clifton made a verb out of pretzel with pretzelize. They also pretzelize Genesis 3.15 by making the serpent seed spiritual while assigning the seed of the woman to be physical seed. Where does seed where it is the same word seed in both instances in the Hebrew. And let me say that it was apparent in earlier presentations that Ted Weiland claimed that the seed of the serpent was the flesh while the seed of the woman was the spirit. In any case, the contentions are ridiculous. And if one compares them to wherever the flesh or the spirit are mentioned in scriptures it becomes more and more ridiculous. Jesus did not come in the serpent. Jesus did not die in a serpent. And Jesus was not resurrected in the serpent. 
The flesh is good. Yahweh created it. The serpent is not the flesh. When we have fleshly minds, the flesh can do no good. Then it's evil. When we, rather than controlling our bodies, when we capitulate to its lusts and its desires, then we could say that the flesh is evil. But the flesh was made for good. Clifton continues, they pretzelize the parable of the wheat and the tares by their hocus-pocus reasoning to mean spiritually righteous and unrighteous people instead of genetic wheat people and weed people or tares. They pretzelize the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil to mean wooden trees rather than family trees. They pretzelize Genesis 4.1 to make Cain a son of Adam. And I would say that actually Genesis 4.1 was pretzelized by ancient scribes and the anti-seed liners refused to depretzelize it. They pretzelize the Greek word ek translated as of or from to mean spiritual offspring in John 8.44 rather than the stock or family from which one is derived. They pretzelize Matthew 23.35 to mean the blood of Abel was somehow spiritual rather than Cain having physically murdered Abel. They pretzelize John 3.3 to mean born again instead of being born of the correct race or born from above as it should be read. They pretzelize 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 3 to mean mental seduction rather than physical seduction. They pretzelize both the words eat and touch as they are used in Genesis 3.3 to literally mean to consume food while Proverbs chapter 6, chapter 9, chapter 30 Genesis chapters 20 and 26 all prove otherwise. They pretzelize Revelation chapter 2 verse 9 and chapter 3 verse 9 by making the impostor Jews mentioned there full-blood brothers to Abel rather than their having been fathered by Satan. They pretzelized the passages about Judas Iscariot, making him an ordinary person rather than a genetic devil. They pretzelize 1 John 3.12 by spiritualizing the father of Cain rather than properly identifying him physically as being of the wicked one, Satan. In spite of evidence otherwise, they pretzelize John 8.23 and 8.38 to mean that the Redeemer and those Jews had the same father. Again, by claiming it is speaking spiritually rather than physically. In short, they continually pretzelize 
both the context and the letter of the original languages in order to support their warped hypothesis. There is probably no better example of pretzelizing scripture than Jeffrey A. Weekly has in his book The Satanic Sea Line, Its Doctrine and History, in portions taken from pages 4 through 9. Since I have pointed out how these Antichrist, Anti-Seedliners do this, see if you can detect this in the following segments from his book. And Clifton has a very long citation of Jeffrey Weekly's book here, which I loathe to read, but which I must. And how, while I did not intersperse any comments in it as I prepared my notes for this evening's podcast. I'll probably make a few. If I make too many, I'm afraid I might ruin Clifton's point. Quoting Jeffrey Weekly's Jeffrey Weekly's book, Clifton says, From the above, I, meaning Weekly, find it difficult to believe that this tree from which Eve obtained the fruit was anything other than a tree. Food, ma'akal, an eatable food, including provender, flesh, and fruit. Fruit or victual, citing Strong's Concordance. Food, especially corn. Fruit tree, sheep to be killed, citing Jesenius' lexicon. Desire, pleasant, lust, greed, dainty, desirable, has the meaning of desire extending to both good and bad objects, citing the Theological Wordbook of the Old Testament by R. Layard Harris. Weekly says, This Hebrew word is translated 26 times in the Old Testament as pleasant, utmost bound, lusting, lust, dainty, desire, lusted exceedingly, and coveteth greedily. This word is neutral in our discussion. And that's fine. That's what Weekly insists. It does not prove the point one way or the other, as it does not indicate what the object being desired is. And of course it does, but Weekly rejects the notion that the object of desire is to be understood allegorically. Weekly says, Nonetheless, I put this here so that the reader can see how to fairly treat a neutral word. Actually, not one word here is neutral when they're all put together. Then explaining the word took, lakak, L-A-Q-A-C-H in Strong's transliteration, maybe lakak, to take a primary root, accept, to accept, A-C-C-E-P-T, bring, buy, carry away, fetch, get, seize, etc., citing Strong's Concordance, and to take, to take with the hand, to lay hold of, to take away, to take possession of, to take captive, to send after, to fetch, to bring, or to receive, citing Jesenius's lexicon. Take, get, fetch, lay hold of, seize, receive, acquire, buy, bring, marry, take a wife, snatch, 
take away, citing the theological theological word book word book of the Old Testament by R. Layard Harris. Weekly says this Hebrew word is translated over one hundred times in the King James Version as take, taken, took, fetch, receive, accept, bring, married, have a wife, brought, etc. With this word, C-liners will be quick to point out that it is something translated as marry or have to wife. I have bad news for these people. The idea of marry and to have to wife is the possession of a wife, not sexual relations. That's Jeffrey Weekly. He's an idiot because there are probably 50 billion examples in English language literature where a man who had forced sexual relations on a woman was said to have taken her. Maybe there's only 30 billion examples, but there are probably very, very many. Weekly continues, and he says, So the idea expresses when Eve took the fruit, that was that she took possession of it. This word does not indicate that she was participating in sexual intercourse. Then, defining the word fruit, which we have seen in our explanations of the Epic of Gilgamesh, a woman's body can be described as fruit, or a man's sexual appeal, or a woman's sexual appeal can be described as fruit. That's very clear in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Weekly says, concerning fruit, concerning the Hebrew word peri, which is probably the word that we get pear from, think of that. Fruit, literally or figuratively, evidently Weekly doesn't know what F-I-G period means. Fruit, literally or figuratively, bow, first fruit, reward, according to Strong's Concordance, and then fruit, whether of the field or of a tree, metaphorically used of the result of labor, or offspring, according to Jusenius. Fruit as a verb, to make fruitful, to increase, to multiply. The fruit of a tree or vine, the fruit of the womb, meaning children. Fruit as consequences resulting from an action or a reward, citing the theological word book of the Old Testament. Weekly says this Hebrew word is used over 100 times in the King James Version and is translated as fruit. Fruits, fruitful, reward. The meaning of this word is clear in this verse, as we have already established that tree means, of all things, a tree. Thus, fruit in this verse means fruit of a tree. And I wonder how Weekly would treat, I believe it's Ezekiel chapter 36, where it says that the Assyrian was the tallest tree of the garden. And if the Assyrian was the tallest tree of the garden of God, then the Elamite must have been a tree also, and the Mede must have also been a tree, and the Babylonian must have been a tree, and the Syrian must have been a tree, and the Hittite must have been a tree, and on and on and on. And the Bible is a book about trees. Wow, what a clown. 
Okay, I'm sorry. Now, weekly handles the word eat. Akal. To eat, literally or figuratively. Again, he missed the figurative part. Consume, devour, burn up, dine, eat up, feed, according to Strong's Concordance. To eat, to devour, food, to eat of a land, a field, a vine, to eat of its produce or fruit, to take food, to take a meal, to dine or sup, to feast, used of sacrificial banquets, to devour people, such as the poor, to destroy by war and slaughter, to devour, to consume, fire, to enjoy, to enjoy, good fortune, fruits of actions and sexual pleasures, and at least he had the integrity to include the end of that de- definition from Jacinius's lexicon, which Clifton will quote on shortly. And then quoting, defining eat again, eat, consume, devour, burn up, and feed from the theological word book of the Old Testament, which has some serious shortcomings. Weekly says, this Hebrew word, meaning eat, is used over 100 times and is translated as eat, eaten, consumed, at meat, devoured, etc., once again, the seedliners will be quick to point out that this word can be used of sexual pleasures. While this is true, it is only true when used in that context. Well, guess what, weekly? In the present case, the context is that of an actual tree. That's because weekly insists that it's an actual tree. With fruit, because weekly insists that it's literal fruit. And thus, eat rightly means the consumption of food, not sexual pleasures which is just stupid. (laughs) It's just ridiculously stupid to think that Eve actually ate a piece of fruit from an actual tree and that that brought death on all men. That's ridiculous that that brought death on all men. Weekly continues, it's hard for me to keep from running my mouth, I'm sorry. Weekly continues and he says, So we see that only by incorrectly defining words can Genesis 3.6 be taken to support the view that Eve was sexually seduced. Bullshit. Now we will look at Genesis 3.13. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. The understanding of this verse hangs on the word beguiled. I would say that, no, it doesn't. I'm sorry, it doesn't. Have the seed liners been honest with this word? What does it mean, beguiled, nasha, to lead astray, i.e. mentally to delude, or morally to seduce, beguiled, deceive, citing Strong's Concordance, and then to err, to go astray, kindred to the verb to forget, to lead into error, to cause to go astray, to deceive, to seduce, to corrupt, citing Jesenius's lexicon, and then beguiled, deceive. This verb is used mainly in the sense of lead astray, seduce, mislead, deceive, even for self-deception, citing Jeremiah 37.9, citing the theological word book of the Old Testament. Weekly says this Hebrew word in its various forms is used 16 times and is translated in the King James Version as one time utterly forget, one time 
sees, one time beguiled, and then multiple times deceived or deceived. The seed liners will insist that it be translated seduced, and they define it as a physical sexual seduction, because the English word seduce can mean that. But can the word deceive mean sexual seduction? Is it not proper to take the three definitions given as synonyms? As a matter of fact, this is weekly, as a matter of fact, I give more than one definition for every word because each source was written by fallible men and therefore could be wrong, as in the case for Dr. Strong, where he defines the word Gentile. In the New Testament, his theology causes him to give a clearly impossible definition. In any case, the biblical principle is to have all evidence verified by two or more witnesses. When all these definitions are taken together as synonyms, the conclusion one comes to, if he is seeking to be honest, is that Eve was deceived in the mind, not sexually seduced. This is verified in three ways. 1. The context established in Genesis 3.6 does not include sexual intercourse. That's because Weekly insists it does not include sexual intercourse. 2. The word eat in Genesis 3.6 is the same word eat in Genesis 3.13. Well, it's also the same word eat in the Proverbs where it says that bread eaten in secret is sweet or something like that. And that's a clear allusion to adultery sexual relations, bread eaten in secret, bread in secret. Weekly continues with his stupidity, and he says, The New Testament explains this same event in 2 Corinthians 11.3, But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now notice that Weekly left out the important part of the passage that's just, I believe, one verse sooner. Oh, those naughty verse numbers are always screwing us around because we read things out of context. I'm sorry, it's yes, it's at the end of verse 2, it's in the preceding verse, it's one verse sooner. For I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. That passage sets the context for the serpent beguiling Eve. That passage sets the context for what that seduction was all about. Paul did not want the assembly of Corinth to lose its allegorical virginity by being deceived from true doctrine like Eve lost her actual virginity by being deceived by the serpent an allegory when an allegory when you compare one thing allegorically to another one of the items has to be literally true for it to make any sense According to Weekly, the word so in the above verse can be properly rendered in like manner. It is clear that this verse indicates that Eve's mind was wholly deceived. No, not at all, because 
wicked thoughts. Wicked thoughts are punished in Scripture nowhere. Evil thoughts are punished in Scripture nowhere in the law of God. Is there a punishment for a thought? There is only punishment for action. For action transgressing the law. There is punishment for thought in God's law exactly nowhere. Weekly says. So the first point of the satanic seedline doctrine does not agree with the scriptures. Eve was not sexually seduced, but rather she was mentally deceived. Bullshit. The next point of the satanic seedline doctrine is that Cain was the product of the alleged sexual encounter that Eve had in the garden. To examine this, let's turn to Genesis 4.1. Like as if all of us who believe to see line missed this passage? Did we really miss this passage? Has weekly not somewhere else to turn? And Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Right. Look at Origen's Hexapla and see six different interpretations with six different totally meanings totally different meanings because nobody even in antiquity could figure out what the hell this was saying from the Hebrew. Nobody. They couldn't get it right. Six great interpreters and six different interpretations. Wow. I'm sorry I digress again. Weekly says, once again, the meaning of this verse will become clear by looking up some words. New, yada, to know, properly to ascertain by seeing, used in a great variety of senses, figuratively, literally, euphemism, etc. Citing Strong's Concordance. To perceive, to acquire knowledge, to know, to be acquainted, to know, to perceive, to be aware of, to understand, to get to know, to discover, to experience, to become acquainted with. A euphemism for sexual intercourse, i.e. to lie with. It, this is the only time Weekly probably recognizes a euphemism for sexual intercourse. This is probably the only verse he realizes it. 4. To have knowledge of. 5. To foresee. To expect. 6. To turn the mind to. To care for. To see about. To be knowing or wise. To be or become known. To make to know. To show. To teach. Citing Jacenius's lexicon. And then finally. No. Is used in every stem and expresses a multitude of shades of knowledge gained by the senses. It is also used for sexual intercourse on the part of both men and women in the well-known euphemism. Adam knew his wife Eve and parallels, and there are quite a few parallels. Citing, and I'm skipping a couple of lines, it, dis it is used to describe sexual perversions such as sodomy, etc., etc. To know a man is to, for another man, to, to be a sodomite. Citing the theological word book of the Old Testament. Weekly says this word is used over 500 times in the Old Testament and is translated in the King James Version as new, know, known, perceived, what, knowest, wotteth, can tell, sure, blah, blah, blah. This word is certainly, I'm sorry, this word is clearly being used as a euphemism meaning sexual intercourse. This is the only time Weekly would recognize such a euphemism in Genesis. Because from this Eve conceived and bare a son. The one who had intercourse with Eve was Adam. The son produced was Cain. 
Cain is clearly the son of Adam. Thus we have seen in clear and honest study that Cain was the son of Adam. Therefore, point two of the seed line doctrine, i.e. that Cain was the product of Eve's sexual encounter with Satan, is shown to be inconsistent with the scriptures. And I must say, bullshit, the verse is corrupt, and you can't rely on a corrupt verse. Doesn't Weekly have anywhere else in scripture that he could go to show that Cain is the son of Adam? If Genesis 4.1 is demonstrably corrupt, a fact that Weekly has either purposely overlooked or is totally ignorant of. Look at the Interpreter's Bible and compare the, the columns in Origins Hexapla and see all the various times that the translators the ancient translators of Hebrew actually struggled trying to figure out what Genesis 4.1 meant. Who Cain came from? Or what Eve was trying to say? Six translations, six different interpretations. None of them even close. Clifton says, If you have followed Weekly's documentation and comments very carefully, you will notice that he does more to verify two seed line rather than disprove it. Under the word desired, weakly said pleasant, lust, greed, dainty, desirable, has the meaning of desire extending to both good and bad objects. Then he said it didn't prove anything, implying that lust couldn't be applied to that word. Under the word took, he said this, take, get, fetch, lay hold of, seize, receive, acquire, buy, bring, marry, take a wife, snatch, take away, have a wife. Then he turns around and says it doesn't mean that. 1 Corinthians 6.16 says, Know ye not that he which is joined to a harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. Therefore when Satan seduced Eve in that unit, Union, they became one flesh, as in marriage. Then, on the word beguiled, weakly said, morally to seduce, from Strong's. How can weakly deny that morally to seduce cannot apply to unlawful sexual intercourse? Yet he does. It seems that whether or not something has sexual connotations depends on how weakly interprets it. In the case of Eve and Satan, he says no. In the case of Eve and Adam, he says yes. He is wrong on both counts, unless Abel is included in the later. In short, Weekly is arguing that Eve had a thought that killed. That's exactly what he's arguing. If that position is true, why didn't Yahweh tell her to change her mind? Therefore, it had to be something that could not be corrected by reversing the thought pattern. If a thought can kill, as Weekly implies, we are all in trouble. After all, Genesis 3.13 asks the question, What is this that thou hast done? Had it been a mental crime, the question would have been, What is this that thou hast thought? The word done in that verse, Strong's number 62.13, the Hebrew word asah, and in both Strong's and Jesenius's, has nothing to do with anything mental, and has everything to do with to produce or create. In fact, Jesenius's, under the definition of Asa, 
includes a definition with sexual connotations. To work or to press immodestly the breasts of a woman, citing Ezekiel chapter 23, verses 3, 8, and 21. So the Greek poiine and the Latin facere, perficere, confessary, and mulierum as a euphemism for sexual intercourse. Clifton says this last definition really blows weakly and all of the Antichrist anti-seedliners clean out of their fabricated theological polluted water. The impact of, on this last definition given by Jesenius for this word asa, the impact of this last definition is undetected in the text of the King James Version where in each case the verb asa is rendered as the verb bruise in one tense or another all used of the breasts of a woman but if we read Jesenius's definition and if we read the way asa is commonly used in the Hebrew language it doesn't mean bruise at all. It has a quite different meaning. The Bible is full of sexual innuendo, and it uses both allegories for sex and sexual acts as allegories. For instance, we read a condemnation of the people of Jerusalem in Ezekiel chapter 16 in verse 26, and it says... Thou hast also committed fornication with the Egyptians thy neighbors, great of flesh, and has increased thy whoredoms to provoke me to anger. Now, where it says that the Egyptians were great of flesh, in relation to fornication and whoredom, it certainly was not referring to the size of their noses, or to something as mundane as obesity. In fact, looking at all of the inscriptions the Egyptians left behind, obesity wasn't a problem at all. We may read the following in the verse immediately preceding that. In Ezekiel 16.25, where it says, Thou hast built thy high place at every head of the way, and hast made thy beauty to be abhorred, and has opened thy feet to everyone that passed by, and multiplied thy whoredoms. Here where it says, open thy feet, in modern language, it may be translated, spread thy legs, and the meaning of the passage becomes much clearer. That's God speaking. Those Egyptians great of flesh, the Israelites were spreading their legs for them. Yahweh our God describes our sin exactly for what it is, sometimes with euphemisms, and sometimes with very plain language. The existence of the plain language in some scriptures informs us that euphemisms in others very well have similar meanings. Jeffrey Weekly can isolate each word of Genesis chapter 3 
and use a concordance to claim almost anything he wants to claim about them. Of course, they can all appear in a multitude of contexts, since most of them are quite common words. But, for instance, one may be seduced to eat a bowl of ice cream. One may have desire for a new car. But that does not mean that one will engage in sexual relations with a barracuda or a mustang. However, when the images of Genesis chapter 3 are all strung together, the desire for the tree, how pleasant it was to the eyes, the shame and covering of the loins, the punishment in childbirth, the command that a woman's desire should be to her husband, who was probably not a fruit, and the prophesied war between two different kinds of offspring, which resulted from the commission of a tangible act. Only someone with an agenda could deny that the nature of the sin was sexual, because any other translation, any other interpretation, pretzelizes the entire Bible, to borrow a term from Clifton. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And good night. Don't you know that?